You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Hey, Bracken. Hey, Kirk. Do you see this here? I see it. I see it. Are you jealous of my uh, my swag, Bracken? Kirk's holding a $800 water bottle in his hands. At least $800. These Yetis are no joke, Bracken. You know it's a legit company when they slap their label on a Yeti. Yeah. Usually they order some some custom ink four dollar water bottle that is a that's a legitimate piece of of swag yeah i'm feeling quite proud of myself here and i just wanted to rub it in your face that i have a a free water bottle big deals being signed over here he's signing deals getting all this stuff sent to him kirk my number is between zero and five how many remaining sponsorships i have well i know the answer to this you do how many is it Zero. Zero. I'm officially the unsponsored man. <laughs> Nothing. How does it feel, man? I don't know. I, it's, it's a 50-50. 50 percent of me feels like I am my own man. I'll mm. do and say whatever I want. And 50 percent of me says, you're unwanted. No, no one wants you, Bracken. Mm-hmm. That's why you're your own man. If you're standing alone, it's because no one wants to stand by you. So I don't know how I feel. <laughs> well, I feel like comparing it to the past when sponsorships were given away like candy in your early years, it has to feel a little weird comparatively because that was such a heavy focus for you for a few years. Oh, yeah. Anytime you have something and it's reduced, it's hard not to take it personally. But I'll say this. If I were racing, training full-time and racing a lot – this would be hard to swallow. Yeah. When I look back and say, I don't know, what have I finished? Three Spartan races in two years? Kind of makes sense that no one wants to slap their logo on me. So, mm. yeah, the, the totally unsigned man. I lost my remaining one deal. Well, that's because you're a self-made man now, Bracken, and, and the world recognizes you don't need you don't need no one. You don't need no one. I'm a self-made thousandaire. Yeah, that's all that really matters. Do you hear... You hear some snowplow going on in the background? Yeah, more snow. Finally huh? got some snow. Yeah. Same here. After inch an inch of ice, we kind of got the uh, Milwaukee treatment. You got that? Yep. Yes, sir. Now, you're a little more rural. Mm-hmm. What's your snow removal like out there on the lake? They're on top of it, man. Really? Like anywhere else. Yeah, I live on a little side street off of like a county highway, county highway is taken care of great. And then my side street, they must just dip off and hit it quick when they hit the county highway. So it's... That's nice. Yeah. It wakes me up bright and early every morning, the snow plow on the road, like, you know, 20 feet from my house, uh, scraping mm-hmm. by. So yeah, we're taken care of. When you live rural in the Midwest, you get one or two things. You either get really good small town snow removal, or you get the kind where they just kind of scrape it down. They leave a, mm-hmm. a base layer of snow that's kind of like your new road. So it's nice you don't get that. The downside of having City Hall surround me on two sides with parking lots is that they start 
it's prioritized for snow removal, but sure. you'll get it at 3 a.m. Sometimes you'll get it 5 a.m. Whatever it is that they hit that first and they hit it often. So yeah, they, they, they wake us up. Yeah. Well, going back to the sponsor thing, you know, I think I'm down from four or five pseudo sponsors to really one, but you could call it two. And, and that is Spartan race, which I would have to call a sponsor because they're, you know, helping me out. But again, semantics, I did sign with them. Um, and then USANA, that's it. Everybody else, poof, gone. I cannot believe Gone Rogue dropped you. Well, you were the only person I know of that A, liked their product and B, promoted it in a very, I would say, organic, believable way. People knew that you actually liked it. And I can't believe that you didn't make the cut. If you didn't make the cut, no one's going to make the cut. I actually loved them. Yeah. They, they came out with their turkey bites, which are fantastic. Not like their original dry chip product. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. And that, that really kept me hanging around. But but Gone Rogan uh, ended their partnership with Spartan. And so that contract came through Spartan. I'm sure they weren't seeing a return on investment and then they bailed. But Usana um, has been a nice a nice addition. They've been fantastic to work with. Super easy. Their products I believe in. Again, wouldn't sign with somebody I didn't. So um, that swag is, is sweet. But it does feel a little weird. Like, you know, I think we should just talk about the sponsorship game with, like, athletes today. Mm-hmm. Like, what it looks like. You know, like, wh- why do you feel like, you know, why do you feel like you're no longer on the table? You know, for, for one, like, our sponsorship with Endurelite got taken over by new management, at least mine. And they were requiring a lot of, a lot of posting and a lot Mm of the, the requirements ramped up. And there's a lot of people out there who will do that, um, for a product exchange. And, and in my opinion, like two posts a week are entirely too much when I only post once a week at most on my social media for their full sponsorship program, they were asking for an obscene amount of, of return. And maybe not everybody got that offer, but that's what I got. And I was like, there's no way. There's no way. I think there's so many people hungry out there to take ambassadorships that sponsorships are easy to leave by the wayside, like true paid sponsorships. Yeah, I think the ambassador role has killed the low-level sponsorship Yep, because they're doing everything that was asked of a low-level sponsored athlete. When I say low-level, I'm talking five digits or below. Eh, low five digits. If you're, if you're making less than, I would say, $20,000 off a of sponsorship annually, it would be considered low-level from a business's marketing budget. Mm-hmm. You get above, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 and now you start talking, you know, that's a, that's a significant piece that, that makes an impact on people's lives. 10,000 is kind of that like standard low level sponsorship where we're going to give you money. You will feel 10,000 in your pockets most likely, but it's not so much that like you're our flagship and we're not going to require too much of you. But now what was required of that is required of ambassadors who do it for free. Yep. Some get product free. Some don't even get that. Most get the the honor of being able to say that they get a discount on product. Yeah. And that's enough for people. And since they're willing to do it for that, companies don't have to give low-level sponsorships. And so it seems like it's more boom or bust now. Like you'll have a premium of that eight to $12,000 sponsorship that, you know, of the people we know, a small amount can get that. Other than that, it's ambassadorship or you're a superstar and you get to name your price. That middle ground's really being cut out by the ambassador role. 
Yeah. That's, I don't know if that's good or bad for the industry. My personal take is I don't like it because it cheapens everything because ambassadors will jump ship every single month. One, one month they're ambas- ambassadorings one thing and the next month it's the next thing. And mm-hmm. it all starts to ring hollow after a while. But I think that's just the state of the union right now. Yeah. If you're not one of the extreme high flyers, consistent cream of the, t- the crop, you say that middle ground is being lost. Well, that's the majority of, of the athletes yeah. that are still in the spotlight, but maybe not, you know, uh, able to get those really lucrative deals. I know on this side of things, like a really good sponsorship and a good partnership uh, with a reputable company is somewhere in the five to $10,000 range per year. And that's for a high level athlete with reasonable responsibilities and requirements asked of their sponsor. Um, anywhere in there is about as good as it gets as far as I know this day and age, which is good. If you can accrue a few of those, then you're doing all right. Right. Especially if you're good enough to make some money on races, but that's what it just seems like the state of sponsorship is for some of the big companies right now. And I guess to answer your previous question, why I'm not a, a draw is because a, I'm not visible racing anymore, but biggest is B I'm not visible on social. I'm, I'm very upfront. I still have sponsor calls with people. Mm-hmm. Hey, I think you'd be a good fit. Let's hop on a call. We get on there and then I tell them the, I give them the kiss of death, which is it cuts out 99% of my opportunities, which is here's the thing. I don't want to code. I don't want a post minimum. Yeah. I don't want to do that. What I want to do is promote it organically and naturally if it fits into my lifestyle, which for us is I talk about it with my athletes. I talk about it on the podcast naturally. Everyone knows the shoes I wear. Everyone knows the products I use, and I'm not pushing any of that because I don't have anything to push. If I have a code, because I'm a human who enjoys money, I'm going to push people towards that. Yep. Even if I don't fully believe in that, I'm going to be tempted to do that, and I don't want that. So I refuse codes, and I codes are the only way they can track return on investment. And ROI has now completely taken over the social media and the sponsorship, the marketing world, yep. and... My ROI is a little bit more difficult to to quantify. And so the vast majority of companies who aren't looking for something long term aren't going to have any use for that. And I understand that. And that's fine for me because I don't want to I don't want to compromise on that. And I understand where my value lies. It lies in my spoken word on my podcast and my spoken word with my clients. Yep. Let's say we move 100 or 200 shoes because we talk about it. If they're not using a code, no one knows about that. Yeah. If we use, if we move 10,000 units of Tailwind because people hear that I talk about it and they don't say, hey, somewhere in this process, let me tell you that I ordered this because I heard Bracken and Kirk talk about Tailwind. That doesn't happen. So it's not quantifiable. So that's that's where my lack of industry sway comes into play. Mm-hmm. Although when you call your lack of industry sway, it may be more powerful than anything you could put on social media once a month as a post, your well, verbal thing. word. Yeah. My posts aren't going to drive anything. Why don't we just talk about the elephant in the room, Bracken? Is there an elephant? Speaking of shoes. Oh, the last one I lost? Yeah, I'm not with VJ anymore. The, wait, wait. The last one we lost. We, yeah. That's true. You and I are both no longer VJ athletes. We, we both got cut by VJ shoes this year, which was... Uh, I can't quite decide how I feel about it. Um, 
I think we've had conversations about this off mic, so we don't need to get that too in depth with it. But I think it's disappointing in the in the sense that I believe we are very true and honest stewards of their brand. Of course, we speak about other brands on the podcast, which I understand is a conflict of interest, but you know when you're hearing it, it's not being forced upon us to speak it via a written contract. So seeing that one go has my feelings a little hurt, Bracken, because I believe we've done we've done as good or better of a job than anybody and probably have helped them sell more shoes than anybody. I would say that's probably not quantifiable and also true. Yep, exactly. So... We'll see. We'll see where the direction goes with my footwear this year. VJ makes some good shoes. Don't get me wrong. There's other shoes I really do like that might suit courses better. But mm-hmm. um, we lost that one, and it's it just makes me feel a little goofy, if I'm being honest with you. You don't seem to care that much. <laughs> I mean, there's that little piece of someone decided not to date you any longer. So. Been there. <laughs> the difference for me is I was planning on breaking up anyway which is what people say after they've been broken up with. But yeah. I'd had some conversations with some of the athletes I'm close with and and you and some other people that I wasn't planning on resigning this year because I had gotten to the point where every shoe that they make is a good serviceable shoe, but there is a different shoe out there that I would choose for that, for that purpose. True. Like for, for muddy and wet, there's a different shoe I would choose because some of the other brands have caught up in terms of grip. They may not fully match VJ's grip yet, but they're close. They're like nine-tenths of their grip, yeah. but the shoe it fits me better. And for long for long races, I don't wear them. And for training, I don't wear them. I only really wear them for muddy, wet races. And at this point, that's not worth me taking money away from the brand. And it's no longer a shoe that I could honestly recommend. This is the best option. I think it's one of the better options, but they haven't made... I feel like they are kind of doing the Reebok thing. And this doesn't reflect on VJ Shoes USA. This reflects on VJ the company, which is housed overseas. But it's been like four or five years now we've been associated with them, and they still haven't fixed their tongues. They still haven't fixed the weight of their shoes. They haven't fixed their their midsole, some of their density issues. Their softer midsoles bottom out. Their, their shoes that don't bottom out feel like bricks when they get wet. So... I didn't like some of the uh, the lack of innovation, and I still like the shoe. I'll still wear it when like their studded shoe is still the shoe I will wear 100 percent of the time when I need a no. studded shoe. But I was to the point where I had a better tool for every situation. So I guess this one didn't sting me as much because mm. it allowed me to part ways with the brand without having to part ways with the brand. Maybe you just don't have feelings. It could be. It could be. I'd be very curious if we did have a code on the podcast that was expressed how often it would have been used. I think it's a little tough. Like, you know, if you go back in like my social media and and I think about social media zero these days. So again, mm-hmm. I understand like that trackable return on investment. Um, you go back five, 10 years and I was a daily poster once in a while to a day. Like it was like the, the mindset I was in and now I'm focused on lots of other things aside from myself. I think I was a little self-centered or self-focused back then. And now I'm, I'm not so much. So my, my, need to share with the world isn't nearly as high. Um, but, and I don't know if you can call this old school, but like, I feel like podcasting and voice is sort of like old school marketing. Whereas social media now seems to be the one objectively trackable thing that companies like to yeah. go to. And I understand that cause you have to go off of something, but like, where has spoken word fallen by the wayside? It's, um, a little disappointing, I would say. Yeah. I don't, 
I go back and forth on all this. I know I've, I've created my own situation where my unwillingness to engage on social media limits my ceiling, but I'm comfortable with where I'm at. And social media for me is a negative relationship. Yeah. When I do it more consistently, it's a drag on me. It takes time, but the more I do it, the more I end up looking at it. And then I found, find myself every time I like, I refresh a post to see if there's more comments or likes. Yeah. That's not me. I shouldn't care about that. It shouldn't affect my self-worth. So I intentionally distance myself from it. So yeah, I mean, I think that we're in a good spot, Kirk. That's what people say when they've been broken up with. This will be better <laughs> for me, but there's... I don't think it changes what we do moving forward. Oh, not at all. And it certainly doesn't compromise our ability to to have people believe that anything we do say, we fully believe. Oh, yeah. It always has been. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's long term. That's all we could really focus on. So, yes, it is always strange to lose sponsorships because it is hard to, to distance yourself from that being your industry value. Yeah. Say la vie, Kirk. Say la vie. Um, let's move on. You had a you had a topic brought up uh, or a question or something you wanted to address as far as running biomechanics gate, all that yeah. stuff. Running stride. We're gonna do a. By the way, we're gonna do a bit of a preview episode uh, about San Luis Obispo coming up this weekend. But um, I want We want We should dive into that one topic. I think first. Yeah, this will be the training part of this Tuesday talk. Yep. You and I both have noticed this, and it's come to light recently. I think we've both been receiving videos from athletes, uh, some stride analysis. Neither of us are really, let's let's totally rework your stride, but we like to see the way an athlete runs and see if there's any low-hanging fruit that we can, we can shore up. And then it also helps put into perspective the type of workouts we should give based on how they run. But between that and watching some races, I commentated two races this weekend, got to watch some people on camera who I've only seen them post their interval workouts on social media. And the trend that I'm seeing again, that I haven't seen since last year, because we haven't seen races, is that people stride, that they post from workouts and that they show during the, like, in the midst of a race is not always the same. But some people it is. Some people have that same beautiful stride start to finish, and some have the same choppy stride in both, but some put out a really bouncy, flowy stride in training, and then they have their, this is my race stride when I'm tired. You almost don't even utilize the stride that you've shown me on social media you're practicing all year. So I want to talk about how you practice your stride today. Yeah, and I would argue that is one of the biggest difference makers between those who end up pulling away the second half of a race and those who end up just bleeding time, not all the time, but it's one of the factors stride breakdown. Mm -hmm. Once you're fatigued, um, not able to keep your most efficient mechanics is what ends up costing you seconds, tens of seconds, sometimes minutes on a race course, um, just losing sight of efficiency easier said than done. Don't get me wrong, but why don't you, why don't you open the door bragging? Well, first I want to talk about the why. Some people might say, well, why don't you just practice your best stride and then race with whatever you have and close the gap over time? And that's, I think that's very true, but I don't think that's enough because we've gotten this far in life with two different strides, something's not working. And so I, and I want to drive home the fact that you need to like you, you play the way you practice that gets drilled in basketball and football and baseball. The way you practice is the way you play. But it's not that way in running because you can 
finagle workout strides to always look good. But if you're not choosing the right duration, you might be practicing a stride that's not sustainable. And then even though your cardiovascular system gets the same work either way, there's that muscular mechanical transfer that does not occur on race day. So you're using the same internal system, no matter what stride you're using, but your actual biomechanics are untrained. And once you switch to that, you start just bleeding out time on race day. And I think it's underlooked in training that I run perfectly here and this is my race stride and I'm just going to get better at it over time. I don't think that that's addressed enough. Well, I think the key word there, in my opinion, and this isn't something we've actually hashed out beforehand, before this conversation. So this is actually a new conversation for us, but yeah. the key word there is duration. Yeah. What I think the key word is, is duration. Look at anybody. You can look at some of you ever watched, like, I remember this back in college or even high school, you'd look at like a, a great 400 meter runner and they open it up and their stride is just big and flowing and beautiful. And then coach decides to stick the guy in the mile for whatever reason. And you look at what happens the last lap or two, and he's doing like the shuffle and his head's tilted to the side and his arms are flailing Mm -hmm. because he's unable to practice that form over duration, which means it's useless, right? You see it all the time. And so it's really like, sure, you can look good for your Instagram clip when you film yourself running on the treadmill after the workout's already completed for a short blip just to put something on the gram. Like, is that really that really how you're looking, bro? Answer yeah. no. Almost all the no, time. No, it's not. And so there are a couple places to go with this. The first I think I do want to talk about interval duration. It's the reason why when push comes to shove, I prefer longer intervals. Now that's not always something you can implement with every athlete. Some people do respond better to shorter intervals. Some people do respond mentally better to not steering down the barrel of a three, four, five, six, eight, ten 10-minute interval. But there has to be some sustained running present in training. And that's not always there. So here's my belief. My belief is that you have to practice the best, most biomechanically perfect stride that your body can produce. But you also have to practice your current best practice race form. And that is your real world form. And I believe that we get the ratio of those two wrong. I think that people tend to only practice your race form when they're super fatigued and breaking in a workout. And I will admit that I will have workouts where I'll tell people, go until your form breaks and call it. And I think that's a good practice But it's bad practice if you're using a form that's not a sustainable form, then you don't get any practice. So what I like to do personally, and I'm I'm a work in progress on this too, but in a perfect world, I think you should reserve your perfect form for skill work, for shorter reps, for strides, for mechanical work. But any work you do at race pace, Any work you're doing, even plus or minus a standard deviation of race pace, your sustained work, your threshold work, your intervals should focus on your most sustainable stride rather than your someday I'd like to run like this stride. And I think that will receive some pushback that why shouldn't we choose our best stride and work towards it? I'm saying you should choose your, this is the form I use when I'm slightly reduced 
and let's get better at being fast at that form and slightly improving it over time. I think the one sort of tough thing about that advice is you have like two camps. You have the camp that is very in touch with their body. They've been using it and moving through space with their body for years. They started as an athlete, you know, their proprioception is fantastic. Their you know, uh -huh. self-awareness is great and they get it, right? And then you have the whole other camp, which is probably bigger than the first camp, which is the clueless camp. And it's no knock to you. I mean, I've seen myself in races and videos in races thinking I'm running fast and looking good. And then I see it on video and I'm like, oh, that isn't beautiful like you thought it felt, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you have that whole other camp that really thinks they know, but they have no clue what's actually happening, right? while they're running and so it's like right. it's a tricky balance to figure that out i mean if you're feeling smooth and you're feeling fast even if it doesn't look like it on video that is powerful and you're probably efficient for your capabilities at that time but um, i just think that's like worth noting because i think a lot of people are going to be like are going to scratch their heads and be like how do i know how do i know how do i know when my form breaks down or my stride breaks down so what i'm getting at is i'm setting you up to be like do you have any like clues or anything for people yeah. in that regard well, I think that you you nail that point, which is, do we even know what our best form is? And I suppose I set us up for failure because I don't think we have two strides. I think we have three strides. Ooh. And I think two of them we want to avoid. So we have our, I'm just starting out a rep, or I'm running past someone attractive, or the race just started and I'm, it's like you're 120% stride. Well, and all those three strides are really a continuum, right? It's a continuum. Yeah. But if you have your best possible stride, I think that's stride two. It's the stride that once those first 200 meters burn off and you move down, I'm a little tired. I don't have all this excess energy, but I'm still feeling good. I think that's our best stride. But it's the one where we add 10% extra bounce and 10% extra airtime. And we're, we're just prancing and feeling great and looking spectacular. That's, that's an over-exaggerated version of our best stride. Then we slow down to our actual best stride. And if you started to run a mile, your first 200 meters is not your best stride. It's your next four or five that's your best stride. And then if you start to crack, you go to that third stride, which is I'm crumbling, I look bad. I'm not saying we practice that stride. I don't want you to be at your worst stride and then do all your race pace work at that. I want the middle section stride. We're not at the 120% capacity where it's so bouncy and pretty that it's not even sustainable. And you're actually wasting energy feeling so good. And I don't want that reduced capacity 80% stride where things are starting to sag and your head's lolling to the side and your arms are flailing. I think we should never get to that point. But I think by not focusing on the second one, we spend too much time in the first, slightly transition to the second, and then crumble to the third and spend a lot of time there. But if we can spend more time in that center stage, you can avoid the peripherals. And I know that doesn't answer your question, how do I know? But I think I want to clarify a little bit more that it's just not boom or bust. There's the middle ground in between those two that that's the one we have to identify. What do you think? And then I want to get to like, how do you like look yeah. and see and film or whatever, but what do you think? So I, there's like two ways you see people when you get to that third stride, like, oh, shoot, I'm going backwards or I'm kicking home, which often isn't your best stride either. A lot of the times it's just, right. I mean, watch Cole Hawker kick home. It's his worst stride of the whole race, yet it propels him forward the fastest for a mm -hmm. short amount of time. Correct. Yeah. So 
um, what I'm getting at is I feel like you see two things when people start to really fade. And I can think of athletes in the sport of OCR who fit both bills. Athlete one starts to like overstride and like sort of like just hope their legs somehow move them forward by covering a lot of ground and like not galloping, but just like opening things up. Mm-hmm. which sometimes can be slower. Everything expands. Everything expands. Arm action gets longer. Yes. Just knocked a shoe off the wall behind me. Unacceptable. What shoe, what shoe just hit the pavement there? That's the Skechers Razor 3. Like that shoe. Um, and then you have the other one, which I fall into that camp, whereas the stride cadence picks up. And even though you've lost distance with your stride, you know, turnover increases significantly. And sometimes that's how people negotiate or navigate that like i'm breaking down situation Mm -hmm. which one are you and what do you think is better i'm a short strider when a push comes to shove and it tends to work it helps me when the end is in sight it helps keep my pace up for me are we talking when we start to crack or when we're trying to generate speed under duress either one they both i mean because i think about cracking different i think there's two types of people there there's three there's the type that doesn't change when they crack Mm-hmm. But the people that their form changes, it's either that you've had a weight put on your shoulders and people start to close down and hunch and round. And then there's the people that there is a, like a kite tied to your shoulder blades and it's starting to pull you backwards. It's a strong headwind. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a kite. My, sh- my, my head starts to rise. My shoulders start to get pulled back. My arms start to drop in front, almost like I'm slightly being pulled backwards. You do look like that, actually. Yeah. I'm the opposite. I think you're either a rounder, like someone threw a, sh- a sandbag on your shoulders and now you're trying to run with it, or someone has a kite behind you or a rope and they're trying to pull you back. And I'm clearly, as I break down, I rise up vertically and then I lean backwards. I'm the piano on my back for sure. It's not a sandbag. Yeah. Yeah. You round, but you can turn over better with forward lean. And so if there was one to be, I suppose I'd choose yours. You, you ever see like the video of like the, the really drunk kid on his way out from like a sports game and he's, he's on his cell phone and he's, he's doing that backwards lean trying to walk forward, but he, he looks like, like rubber man or flailing tube man. Like the I incline rose up to 10% and he doesn't realize it. <laughs> yeah. And he's leaning back trying to in this like backwards arts. That's what I'm envisioning when I, I picture you just tying yeah. up on the home stretch. People out there know that video. That video has been circulating a few times there. Yeah. You're, yeah. What's better? What do you think's better? I think forward lean's always better. Yeah, I think just let gravity do as much work for you by leaning forward. And if it becomes a shuffle, but a quick one, I don't know. Who knows? It's hard to really pin those things in the moment. And it also depends on what you're running. You get off road and chopping it up is always better. Mm-hmm. You get on the road, especially with some bouncy shoes. And sometimes you can just get a little more by opening up a little bit, but I think what people have to start with is identifying when you're doing too much. For example, there have been some videos of some people training with a very, with very high-end athletes and they're matching them in their interval session. And you look at them and think, that person's way faster than I thought they were. And they have a long, beautiful, great stride and they're running with a really good athlete. And then you see a race video and that stride's not there and they're five minutes behind that great athlete. And you realize they were training with a little bit of race in them. They were using their bouncy, I've got pep in my step, and they're probably overworking the interval, really needing the rest interval to get it back together. 
But by the time the race started, they probably got five or eight minutes of that stride. And then they went to that stride they hadn't been practicing and they're just not able to, to turn over. So identifying what is that version where I'm putting out this version of me to the public or to myself that is probably about 20% exaggerated. Mm-hmm. If you're feeling bouncy and nice, that's not probably your best stride. So the best way I find it, I feel my race stride. I'm talking my 20 minute through 60 minutes, somewhere in there race stride when I do long cutdowns or long threshold runs. And I'm a proponent of threshold intervals over long tempo runs. But one of the beauties of a tempo run is that it dulls your, your excitement without destroying your legs. And the way you run in mile one of, let's say, a 10-mile cutdown, you start with five miles and cut down for five. Your first mile cutdown, you're a little bouncy, but by the time you get to six, seven, eight, you've hit this weird rhythm where you can tell you're lower to the ground. You can tell you're not pumping hard, but you're turning over really well. It's like I'm in a fatigued, fast state right now where I don't look maybe as pretty as I normally would, but I don't look bad. Like there's some economy to motion here. And it's just something you can feel. And I think there's some some truth to getting yourself to that point in order to figure out what is my sustainable stride. That second half of a threshold run, I think, is everyone's best race stride. And so you got to get there. And you either have someone film you or do it in front of a mirror on a treadmill. But you have to burn off that excess energy and that extra bounce that you start with in order to see that first glimpse of this is probably my best sustainable stride. I think like the hard thing is when you're trying to pay attention to stride is like you almost can't even feel it initially. Like you need to build up some of that lactate. You need to build up some of that fatigue. Like my legs are just like doing what my legs do the first five minutes of anything. It's like they're on autopilot and I'm out of touch with them. And sometimes when the race or effort gets real, you're like, oh, shoot, I thought I was having a good day, but now I'm having a bad day. Or, oh, shoot, I thought today might be sticky, but look it, I'm still working well. You ever notice that? Like you, it's like you, oh, yeah. you're out of touch with what your legs are really doing initially until the, that, that byproduct of hard work sets in. And that's the feeling you're looking for, like sort of executing well on. Now, triathletes get a lot of flack for that not running as pretty as, as road runners or track runners run. But they all have a stride that never changes. It may not always be the most pleasing stride because they, they sit down in their stride a little more. They don't bounce typically. There are some guys who bounce, but most of them have that churning it over type of stride where on minute one, they look the same as minute 100. And I think part of that is that they're always a little fatigued. Mm -hmm. They're always running off the bike or off a morning workout, or they just did a a three day the day before. They never have like this crazy amount of energy. And so they don't waste it. And not that everyone should attempt to run like a triathlete because they have Like any other multi-sport athlete, you end up being a master of none and they miss out on some cues sometimes that could make them better runners. But I think there's a a little piece there, which is you might have to fatigue yourself before your real workout starts in order to practice this. And I think there's two real easy ways of doing that. First is run a long sustained interval before your interval workout. If you're going to do, let's let's say a classic workout of yours, 10 to 12 by 400. Mm Mm-hmm up to 16 by 400 if you're breaking it into sets. That's one of those workouts that people can fudge the numbers on. They can go out there and bounce and prance for for their first set of four, recover, bounce and prance the next two of their next four, and then start to fatigue and then get into their all-day stride. Mm-hmm. But 
what if you started with a thousand meters hard, three minutes rest, and now do your three by four by 400. Or if you did two mile tempo, four minute, five minute recovery, and then get into it. Or what if you lifted legs the day before did that? If you do something prior just to take out that excessive bounce to your stride, you can actually get every rep in, in the way you'd want to do it. And I think that's a really good starting point for people that have a hard time deciding, am I bouncing too much or not? Go tempo for a mile or two first Mm -hmm. and then run your workout and see if your stride changes. Yeah. You see that workout. I've seen it a lot lately. The old lumberjack, which is basically like a two mile tempo, three minute rest, you know, set of 400s, three minutes rest, two mile tempo, three minutes rest, set of 400s. Like you just, you basically sandwich them into fatigue and that way you're working on running fast. Well, well filled up. Mm -hmm. Did Mark Godet just post that? Yeah. And I've seen a few others do it recently. Um, Chris Brown, I'd seen do it recently. A couple others. The Michigan's another example of that workout. The Michigan. You see like Ryan Kent likes that style of workout where he'll do it. He'll do a tempo before he does a speed work. Um, that's a good way to play around with it. It's very smart, smart trick there. I think we should talk about, um, just like how to, how to analyze yourself or at least getting the correct footage to try to analyze yourself. So you're going to want to know what you look like. Right. And that means filming Mm -hmm. it or having somebody tell you. Uh, And I think, I think the biggest mistake people make is they just get out and they run or jog and they film it. And they think that that is what uh, is going to help them and they, they couldn't be more wrong. And I know you're on the same page as I am and you'll have a lot to say about this, but I think, you know, what would be best case scenario? If I had to like think out, okay, when do I want to film you running? What would be my best case scenario? First of all, it actually wouldn't be on a treadmill, although Correct. I understand that those are necessary at times. And second, if I had to think, I would take you in like a mile time trial and I would film your third lap. Hmm. head on from the side or i would take a 5k time trial and i would film like mile and a half to like two and a half somewhere in the 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 middle third of the race where fatigue's up you're not kicking home and you're you're reduced to your what you think is your best stride i would film it from the front from the back and have somebody in real time moving along with you from the side filming every aspect where you're working very hard uh and you're also into the effort a bit it's not like you just hop on the treadmill, start running fast. Somebody hits the record button. You film 10 seconds of it. When you're only 30 seconds into that, that's worthless. That's not how you run. It's a waste of time. So fatigued running is the most important, I think, step one of the whole stride mechanic situation. I agree. I think there's two tent poles here you have to have when analyzing your stride. One, you have to get yourself at different paces and at different levels of fatigue. And two, you have to not set your phone stationary and run past it. Yeah. The only way that works is if you get on a track and you set the phone up and you do like a four or five mile tempo and watch yourself come around every single time. But other than that, I think that if you're, if you're serious enough about your running that you're listening to a podcast on it, it's worth finding one friend, one runner or non-runner who is, and you just say, hey, could you ride a bike? next to me on this run and just film me Mm -hmm. move up to the side for a while move behind me for a while but the key is you have to run long enough that you don't care about the person next to you anymore because no matter who you are as a person you're going to clean up your form a little bit when someone's watching 
Mm-hmm. But no matter who you are as a runner, you're going to get to a point where you're tired enough that you can't fake it and it's not worth faking it anymore. Yep. I go back to that 10-mile cut down, 9-mile cut down. That's one of my favorite workouts for holding stride. Yeah. Or a, like a marathon workout, 10-mile run and 5-mile tempo, something like that. If you do something long like that, eventually when you're running that cut down, you realize I could fake my stride a little bit better but I'm only going to hang on for a minute or two and then I'm going to feel worse after. So you have to get to that point, like you said, where fatigue set in and now you go to the, okay, now I lock my stride down and I go to sustainability mode and that's key. So I think if I had to, the one that always gets me is when I do a six mile tempo, which for a lot of people, they'd say that's too long. That's not a threshold run. I don't care about that. I'm using the word tempo, not threshold. Yeah. Make note people. I'm going to go run a six-mile run. I'm going to go out three miles, back three miles. And my goal is to not break down and blow up. But my goal is to get tired and have to work through that. And that's the one I would want to watch my stride on. Yeah. And then I'd compare that. Film a few of your 200 or 400-meter reps that you think you're running at 5K or 10K effort. And look at the difference in your bounce, in your in your arm swing, in the way you carry your shoulders, even in how high your heels are coming off off the ground. We all want to have a pretty stride where our knees come up and our heels circle right up under our butt. That's not efficient for a lot of us. Yeah. I uh, I think that's best case scenario. It'd be like, we're going to carve out, get a buddy, carve out. We're going to carve out three hours here. I'm going to go for a four to six mile tempo cut down. You're going to bike with me. Then we're going to switch the rolls and you're going to do the same. And I agree from the front for a bit, from the back for a bit, from the side for a bit, maybe film at miles two, four and five or something and just get an accurate depiction yeah. uh, while you're working hard and aiming to have good metrics for that workout. I think that's probably best case scenario. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think what a lot of people miss is when I, uh, and I make this mistake, I'll tell athletes, run with your most perfect stride. But we don't always know what that is. We have to go by feel, like you said. I think what they miss is that when you're running your visually or that feeling perfect stride, a lot of times we're not capable of that. And so somewhere in there, we have to compensate in order to run that way. And usually it's with foot plant and and where it's striking underneath your body. When I think I'm running on my best four foot stride, oftentimes I'm not actually planting underneath my body. Hmm. I'm like pronging off the ground and stabbing the ground a little bit. And it may look better as I'm looking down at my feet. I'll look down and think, man, I'm efficient on this, this, this plant and toe off here. But then from the side I re- on that video, I realize I'm not landing right underneath myself. If I, if I actually move back on my foot to midfoot or even a tad bit of heel striking, which for me is a little more natural, my cadence improves a little bit and I'm way more sustainable. Mm-hmm. So even though I think I'm doing it perfectly, I'm still exaggerating my stride. And the less time we can spend in our exaggerated state, the more we get to practice how we're going to use our mechanics on race day. Yep, I agree. I think the last part of this conversation in which I am no expert, not even close, self-proclaimed non-expert, is what do you do with that that video once you have it? What do you do with that once you see it? Like, How do you make that uh, real world applicable as far as inducing change? I mean, I can make suggestions to athletes, and I do, but by no means do I have formal training in this. So I don't want to spend too much time on this because then I want to get to slow coming up here, but... Uh, what do you think? Like, what does an athlete do? Okay. They see their video and they're like, okay, what do I do with this? Now what? 
Well, if this were something else, if this were free throw shooting or squatting or deadlift, swimming, you would set up a camera for every rep you do. And you would do your rep and then you'd watch your rep. That's how I learned how to squat, how I learned how to deadlift. I had people give me advice and then I'd rep and then I'd film. And during my rest period, I'd rewatch back my form and then I'd do that. And you might have to do a version of that early on. Treadmill is not ideal for your form, but it's ideal for feedback. And what one thing you have to retrain is we all have our muscle memory, but we have our memory memory for how that muscle memory feels. So when I think I'm running my best arm action and I know in my head this feels good and I look on film and I realize that doesn't look efficient, I have to then watch myself run the way I'm supposed to run until that memory matches up with my stride. And that just takes some time. You might have to step away from your classic workouts for a little bit and run things that have the ability to be recorded just in order to get that done. How do you know if you're a good candidate to be taking the time to do this? I'd like to think that deep down we all know that we look like crap or we don't when we break down our pace. I think the first is that if you find yourself falling off the pace big time during races, it may not be a pure pacing thing. It might be a form breakdown. Yeah, or quality workouts. If you find yourself crumbling in races, you're a candidate. Yep. But the second is, we're probably all a candidate, so have someone film you during a race. Yep. The next race you go to, give your phone to someone and say, hey, when I come through, could you just get 20 seconds of me running? Mm-hmm. That's what I think. What do you think? I agree. No, I, I absolutely agree. Race footage is invaluable. Yeah, it is invaluable. I think that's that's about that's about right. I have one more important talking point I want to hit with this. Yeah. This is where I feel that my belief in compromised running gets cemented. And compromised running, which by our definition is just running when you have a different amount of stress placed on the body. That can be doing burpees right before you run. In triathlon, that's just coming off the bike and running. For a road runner, that can be doing hill reps and then having to run flat. Anything that compromises your normal running removes the peripherals. It removes that extra bounce and pep and flailing that you might normally do or not do. And it gets you right to the point of, here's my fatigue stride. Yeah. And while compromised running has not been yet scientifically proven to be effective physiologically or not, it is not a debatable fact that when you train compromised running, you spend all your time running under duress. And when you run under duress, you no longer have really even the option to bounce and flit all over the course. You just have to run in your most sustainable way to get your heart rate down and get your body to move in a sustainable motion. And that's why I like doing tire drags or sled push or walking lunges. You do 40 walking lunges and then go run your 400 meters or 800 meters or your mile. Every stride you take is going to be putting you through the type of fatigue and the type of biomechanics you're going to have to use in the second half of a 10K or a marathon or a mile. It just strips away your, your flashy exterior and gets you working just on the things that matter. And that's why I prescribe compromised running for a decent amount of the road-only athletes I work with. Because if they have any tendency to break down form as they fatigue, we're going to work on that. Even if you never have to run a transition between an obstacle or a bike to a run in a race, you're going to have to avoid breaking down. Yep. I think that's probably one of the most powerful things about compromised running is the fact it just forces you to run hard and efficient when you're tired already. And it just forces you right into that feeling 
that we often get in races, which is like, oh, shoot, my legs are filling up. My body's filling up. I need to maintain form and function here. And it just pounds it into your head over and over and over with the compromised running. Even like just simulating race feel of like an obstacle course racing aside, just the running piece alone outside of the obstacles and what slows you down. I think it's huge. I think you're right. I noticed an improvement in my regular flat ground cement running when I started uh, incorporating compromised running. Had no idea that would happen. Thought I was just getting ready for races. And then suddenly I felt like my stay power improved where it normally would break down. So I agree with that. Compromised running is often viewed as an obstacle specific skill and it helps with your transitions. And yeah, if executed correctly, it does. But what it really is, is it's fatigue resistance. Yep. It's knowing how to keep yourself together when the alarm bells are going off or when parts of you don't want to work the way they should work. That's what compromised running does. Yep. What else do you want to wedge in there before we just transition to maybe like a 15-minute BS about the upcoming race? I think I'm happy with that. If this gets the wheels turning for people that maybe I'm not teaching to the test in this regard, because we spend a lot of our time talking about the physiology behind how to teach to the test. What workout should I be doing? What terrain should I be running on? But if you're doing all of it with a stride you never touched during a race, you just wasted all that that planning. Yep. You're at least leaving uh, some of your performance capabilities on the table. For sure. Not utilizing your engine effectively or efficiently. Uh, okay. Sharp transition. San Luis Obispo coming up, Bracken. We got the first stop in the North American uh, Series, Elite Series, I believe it's called. What is the official name? North American Elite Series. And uh, got super distance. You're pulling up something on your phone. Must be Intel. I was going to pull up a list of athletes that are going. Okay. But honestly, it's too long to even waste people's time reading it off. The long list. I went through the other day. Jack and... Rich were sharing some some list of who's going and who's not. And I counted 11 absolute studs on the guy's side. Not guys who could be good, not guys who have shown flashes, guys who on any given day have a full chance of making a podium at a major race. Why don't you list them off? Do you have a, do you have a list or top of mind just for people who want to hear or no? I'll just read off the entire list, yeah. Okay. But 11, and I think an argument could be made for two more. So up to 13 guys who all have the ability to go first through third in this race. And that's that's wild. And that's just who we know are going. Yeah. And the female side is very much the same. Okay. So I'm going to pull this list up, and I'm just going to read this off. Yeah, read this, this list This is obviously off. more for our OCR listeners than our runners. But if our work is done correctly, people will want to watch the race just because there's going to be great racing. Yeah. Speaking of watching the race, uh, Jess is coming for me on this one. And then we're taking a little trip uh, for like five days afterwards in, in California. But what do you guys think about uh, giving Jess the old running public Instagram account? And maybe she can pull some live footage or oh, put sure. up some real time. Because I don't know what's going to be out there. And it always is less than we want. So I was thinking of having Jess out there IG updating as much as possible. I think? like that. Yeah, me too. I'm very much okay. All right, so here's the confirmed, and I'll just start with the confirmed males, male field, and these are the higher flyers. Some people aren't going to be on here because they haven't responded or we don't know they're going. Okay. This is who we know is going. 
Aaron Newell, Angel Quintero, Brent Trail, Emmanuel Camacho, Glenn Race, Hawk Call, Hunter McIntyre, Jacob Klinker, Jesse Bruce, John Howard, Johnny Lunalima, Josh Fry, Josiah Middaw, Kirk DeWitt, Lars Arneson, Leon Kofed, Logan Broadbent, Mark Botris, Mark Gaudet, Matt Rock, Michael Swazo, Nick Mask, Mask, Oliver Evans, Ryan Kent, Ryland Schottig, Tyler Veerman, VJ Jones. That was 27 people you listed. Maybes. Alvaro, Vasquez, Grayson Kilgore, Ken Crigliano, Chris Brown, Ryan Atkins, Ryan Kempson, Ryan Woods, Samuel Herbert. Well, I was told Woodsy was going. I assume Kempson will be there. Yeah, and this was just, this was as of a week and a half ago. We're talking 30 people in the men's field with recognizable names. 30 recognizable names, probably 13 to 15, who could be on the podium at any given time. I think there's 20 top 10 candidates in there. Female side, Alex Walker, Alicia Keeker. Cooker? Keeker? I believe it's Keeker. Amanda Nadeau, Ariel Fitzgerald, Ashley Haller, Ashley O'Hara, Caleb Colby, Amelia, or Emily Stephen Smith, Emma Cook Clark, Aaron Sondig, Sonday, Faye Morgan, Ida, Casey Monroe, Chris Roglowski, Lacey Bourgeois, Burgess. Miranda Kilpinski. I like Bourgeois better. Renee Metevier. Renee is giving it another crack. Renee Nittier. That's what she says. Okay. And uh, Lindsay Webster. That's 18 on the women's side. Allegedly, Rose Wetzel is is, is going to be there now. Steph Garcia might go. I think there's 15 with the top 10 potential there, and I think there's probably only about seven or eight with podium potential. That's what I think. Every single one I read off there has been top 10 at a U.S. National Series event, oh, as far yeah. as I know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean – it's just wild. I don't know if we've had 30 men is tough to in some and you listed 20 men who are legit legit for sure. Let's just read off people who have won a national series race here. Well just no, just list off people who have podiumed. Podiumed a national series or sure. a world event. Sure. Has Aaron Newell did he get one? No, he hasn't. Okay. So I guess you have to keep a guy like him off the list, which is crazy, but yeah. On hell. Yep. Hawk Call. Yep. Hunter McIntyre. Yep. Johnny Lunalima. Josiah Middow. Kirk, I have to leave you off. No, jo- I don't think Josiah's podiumed. He did in Big Bear last year, I thought. Oh, maybe he did. You're right. Okay. Oh, still- or did Arneson pass him? I can't I can't remember. Okay, semantics. But we're at, fo- we're at I'll give you five right now. Lars Arneson. Mm-hmm. Logan Broadbent. Yep. Jacksonville last year. Mark Botris. Yep. Mark Gaudet. Yep. Wait, no, Mark hasn't. He won a world championship last year, though. Okay, put him in. Well, I was talking series race. What? Put him in there, Mark. There you go. Ryan Kent. Yep. Ryland Schottig. Yep. Tyler Veerman. Yep. VJ Jones. That's 13 people that have podiumed. At a race of this level. At a race of this level, yeah. And we're not sure if... I think Kempson and Woods will go. Woodsy, I was told, was going to go after the series. Not from Woodsy, though, so it could be second. And I can't imagine Kempson. And they've both won these type of races. So that's 15 podi- people who have podiumed. And maybe Atkins. 16 if Atkins is there. Which means somebody is going to take 16th place who has won or gone top three at a U.S. national, North American national, or world championship. Absolutely stupid. Wow. It's wild. That's impactful here in that I didn't even realize how deep the field was going to be. We could stop right now and people should be fired up to pay attention to this race. I can only hope, please, Lord, Spartan has some plan for showing some live coverage rather than waiting a week and a half to give us a voiceover. 
I agree with this. Hold on. Let's get to the women. I just want to see comparatively for the women's side who, and, and my knowledge isn't quite as in-depth, but let's just see what we got here. Okay. Alex Walker. She's podium. Yep. Ariel Fitzgerald. No. Mm, Did she get a Jacksonville so. one year? I don't think so. Close. I mean, there's a lot of people top five. If you started the top five list, it would be almost yeah. everybody. Emma Cook-Clark. Yep. I'm going to count Ida because she has world championship podiums. Yep. Chris Roglowski. World Championship podium. In? Uh, OCR Worlds last year. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, it's going to be a little more sparse. Five, yep, on the women's side. But not terribly. That's five already. Lindsay? That's six. Let's call it that. So we got six on the women's side who have podiumed in big races in the past and 16 on the men's side? Yes. Dang. The women's side's a little more top-heavy. But then their places five through twenty are all, yep, like as weighty. I agree. Someone, someone there again. Someone in fifteenth place is going to be someone that could have been fifth. Yeah, crazy to think. But the men's side, someone's going to take fifteenth place that had on paper a chance of winning or going top three, and has gone top three in a race this big before. Can we just appease ourselves one more time? Can we go through the list of men and just talk winners now? Just those who have won. I mean, just because this is fun. It's fun to bullshit about this. I just closed it out. You're going to have to give me 10 seconds. Mm, I'm feeling patient. I do have to pee pretty bad, but I think think I'm going to hang on for the duration of the episode before I go. All right. Men, just people who have won Worlds or U.S. or North American national events. Yes. Let's check it out. Yeah. Angel. What is Angel won? Didn't he win Breckenridge? Or was it a second? I think he took second. Oh, okay. Hunter McIntyre. Okay, Hunter's one, yep. Johnny Lunalima. Yep. Botris didn't get... He's had some seconds. He got the uh, World OCR Championship in Florida that one year. USA OCR? Yep, count it. Beating Hobie Call and others, so let's count it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it was a podunk championship, but Stubb still showed Hobie up. Hobie Call, Robert Killian, yeah. He, he beat, yeah, he beat two world titles, yep. champions. Um, Mark Gaudette. World yeah. Championship. It's four. Ryan Kent. That's five. Who is a current world record holder in two events. Small events, but and he's won National Series events. And he's the reigning High Rocks National Champion. Uh, Ryland did not. Tyler didn't win. VJ Jones. Yep. Ryan Woods. Yep. And if Atkins goes, Atkins. If Kempson goes, Kempson. If Chris, Chris Brown's there, he's working. If he goes. Yep. No, he didn't win. No, he didn't. We have nine guys who have won a big national series or world championship race in this race. Nine that have crossed the finish line first. And we have four other guys who made a podium at a national or world title race in their first attempt. Rylan, Hawk. Lars and Josiah. (laughs) Josiah took second at the inaugural Spartan World Championship 11 or 12 years ago and then disappeared for a decade. Wild. So hearing this list of names, do you feel like you're missing out or are you like whoo thank god i'm not there fit me says man i'm missing out me right here sitting here talking to you says i'm not ready for that shark tank (laughs) so what do you think will happen then let's talk women what do you what do you think i have no predictions on who does what other than Lindsay is the champ until she isn't but what happened my prediction for every big race is this A bunch of studs get chewed up and spit out because you can't put 15 or 20 or even 10 people who are all dominant in the same pack and they can't all PR on the same day. 
is physically impossible. There's no way for everyone to run their best while other people are running their best because half of running your best is moving away from people. Yep. So really good people are going to be spit out the back of the pack and this race is going to be brutal because no matter where you are on course, you're going to have company. There's going to be no letting off for anyone. Whoever takes any position, they will have earned that position. I agree. Because there'll be no letting off the gas or you're just going to plummet down. And that is the most difficult way to race. Yeah, it's true. So that's my prediction. We're going to have carnage and phenomenal races. And there's always going to be, you know, a handful of guys who plan to assert dominance early from the front, which is Mm -hmm. going to have a few guys maybe overextend themselves early and then end up fading harder than they hope. That's going to happen. Can we read that list off? What? The list of front runners, people who attack and control from the front. Yes. Okay. Do it. I would say Angel falls into that category historically. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Hot call. Yep. Hunter McIntyre. Yep. He won't be able to hear. He's going to have to run a different style of race. Josiah Mitto, Lars Arneson, extremely Mark Botris. Mm-hmm. And I won't say VJ controls from the front, but the pace is controlled by wherever he's at. Yeah. And you got Kempson as well. And Woods. Woods and Kempson. That's nine. Atkins if he goes. Mm-hmm. So you have 10 legit front runners. And that doesn't count the guys like Johnny and people like that who aren't front runners, but they hang on the front runner shoulders. But you have nine, you have eight to 10 guys who are most comfortable when they can get to the front and start making people hurt from the start. And that guarantees that even that list of that, let's call it eight, half of those guys can't have a good race because they're not going to be allowed to do what they want. There's going to be other people right there and someone's going to have to overwork early in order to have the strategy they want. Mm -hmm. And that rarely works well for everyone around them. No, including themselves. Just thinking it through here as we're thinking, you know, racing coming up. Tyler Veerman might even fall under that. He went out and led Big Bear for 30 minutes one year. Racing against him, he's going to run hard early. Yep. And assert, which would be good. Yeah. So what does that, I mean, that begs the question, how do you run a championship race with a field of that caliber? You really have two options, right? Other than just... Like if I went out there, I would say, you guys are gone. I'm just going to do my own thing and see, learn some fitness. But people who are there to race, you only have two options. Insert yourself into the front and go for broke or play spoiler and gobble up the people who fall off the back. Which will happen. And there'll be some late chargers. Yep. There are going to be some people who move up 10 spots in the last 30 minutes. There are going to be people who who have great fitness and way capable of better placing than they end up showing because they go for broke, as you said, and they fail. And there's going to be some people who probably jump out on paper who you don't think maybe should be there because they ran their race and were able to continue to progress throughout the race. I would think like if you're one of those going for it and you're not one of those front run leaders, you know, and not like I should give away my strategy up front, but I can't imagine most guys aren't thinking any different is like you keep your eyes on the back of that lead pack, um, which it's going to be packed up early. It's going to be too flat early is my suspicion before they let us hit some hills. I could be wrong, but, and, and if you see anybody off the front end start to move, like make a move, 
you just keep an eye on the front end of that group instead of the back end of that group. And if you see mm -hmm. somebody go and you have decisions to make, you make your decision off of the front of that pack, not the back. And, and that's best case scenario for somebody trying to break in. I did look at, you know, they released the Spartan Trail 10K course online. And in that 10K, it looks like just over 1,000 feet of elevation gain. Something like, what, about between 1,000 and 1,200. They keep calling slow, flat, and fast. But they have too many hills at their disposal there. And if it emulates the 10K course, that means flat-ish the first half. And then some 100 to 300 foot climbs, a couple of them in the second half, which is what's going to spread the field out. I think you could have 10, 15 guys running within 20 seconds of each other through mile three or four even. And then once the hills come, you're going to start to see some gaps start to pop open. Who really over revved to stay in touch and who was staying mm -hmm. within themselves. Um, that's if it follows the similar trajectory as the trail course, which it often does. Again, they could do yeah. reverse. They could hit the hills and then let us run flat or a mix. But that's just what I'm seeing it's roughly a thousand feet of gain. I'm predicting. We'll find out in a couple of days when the map comes out. But it's not. It's not a racetrack. Is what I'm getting at. No, no. And flat is subjective always. But this isn't flat by anyone's standards. Mm -mm. It's not a mountain. But if you're looking at, let's even be cautious and say a thousand feet of gain over six miles. That's 500 feet per 5k. No one on earth would call a 500 foot avert gain 5k flat. Not even close. That's over a hundred per mile. When you go over 100 per mile, that's hilly. Yep. And so there's going to be flat sections. But if they do backloaded hills, you get to your first hill and it feels like the third climb. And so the strong climbers really get rewarded if they can hang in there versus the other way around. The fast runners get rewarded if they can survive the initial climb or two if it's a back half running race. So the way they set it up will certainly determine whose skill set is rewarded. But at the end of the day, nothing is going to come easy out there. And I think rolling hills is more brutal than climbs. Yeah, especially after they allow you to run fast and flat because what happens then is you're sort of in your threshold running here and you're working hard at a threshold rate and then you hit a first steep incline that's sustained. And if it's 200-foot climb, that is sustained in my eyes at this point in the race. Mm -hmm. You suddenly, your heart rate breaches threshold without your decision being made to do so. It's just going to happen. And then everybody's on borrowed time. It just matters like, how how much time have you borrowed? Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. And what everyone needs to remember, that any hill is miserable if you run it hard enough. Yeah. And it's going to be run hard out there. So it's going to be a really, really tough course. Sometimes the double black diamond ski slopes don't crush you the way that a flatter rolly hill course does. Because you can't max out unless you have spent a ton of time climbing you don't even have the mechanical ability to max out your cardiovascular on double black ski slopes. It just doesn't work that way. Everyone can max out their cardiovascular system if you have a runnable hill. Yep. So it might even be more brutal for a lot of people. Yeah, and even if you're a great downhiller uh, in a long sustained descent, a lot of times there's a little bit of coasting. Yes, you get a lot of eccentric damage, but sometimes the heart rate drops for uh, even if it's only three to five beats a minute, it drops for a longer period of time, which is reprieve metabolically. And so in the up and down, I agree. That's the hardest style of racing, hands down. There's no coasting. No coasting. The highest heart rate average um, I've ever gotten was from Asheville this last year, which was an 800-some foot super. Hmm. And it was because of the nature of the up and down, I think, that just – and the heat, just it was the combo. And um, I agree with you there. It's the most painful race. 
that style. Yeah. yeah. Highest heart rate I ever hit during a race was in Breckenridge for a sprint. Sure. That makes sense. And Breckenridge is, is at altitude. It's on a mountain, but you don't go off course. You don't go off trail. It's switchbacks and it's, it's the tame sections. And so that's the same kind of, kind of course where you have no rest. No. Yeah. We have we have much to look forward to from the uh, viewer's perspective. I just I just envision looking at the finishers list, no matter the order, and combing all the way through twenty and seeing names that you've seen in the front before is going to be just a very, very fun. I don't know, fun thing to see afterwards. Of course, there are races where the results tell the story. This this result list is not going to tell the story of the race. Yeah. So I'm praying for some sort of race day coverage. Me too. Any um. Any other thoughts on on the, the race as a whole? Anything else pop up you want to talk about? Well, I'm excited to see the female side because Lindsay has announced that she's retiring from full-time competition. She doesn't have another OCR event on her schedule until, I think, OCR Worlds or something like that in September, October. This is the season. Nicole's not back until probably, I don't know, June. Yeah. This is the season where it's wide open. And someone's going to step up. And I'm excited. Annie Doobie is still not uh, able to run or to race. She had an elbow, elbow and wrist thing, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's wide open. I think I think the one that looking, I mean, there's a lot of great contenders in the women's field. But if you look and you dissect, I mean, the door is open for Emma Cook-Clark. Yeah. As far as top end capability, if she can clean up everything else. That's, that's who I see filling the spot if she can get the details down. If Rose goes out there, I expect her to be second or third. Yeah, but Rose is Emma, well. Emma is so good that she won't be touched by anyone's running without Lindsay and Annie present, which means she gets to get some more growing pains out of the way in a safe place. It's not like if she miss, messes anything up, Lindsay's gone. If Lindsay's not around this year, Emma can just rip it up. Mm-hmm. She yeah. might be scary. Not, she will be scary, and she'll have enough experience, I think, to to yeah. pop one. Yep. All right. Well, too bad you won't be there. Too bad. All right. West Coast is the worst for us because I'm going to wake up. I don't know, somewhere around six or seven. Mm-hmm. It's only going to be four o'clock there. I'm going to have to wait three hours just for the gun to go off. I cannot stand West Coast races. And let's let's put let's just say on the on the Spartan website we have daylight savings time happen on Saturday night, Sunday morning at midnight, and on the start time it says nine a.m. for the elites on Sunday morning. Is what it currently says. So they need to make an announcement about that. But daylight savings seven thirty would really be six thirty. So they're pushing it back. Would be my assumption for one sleep sake and for two daylight sake. So on Spartan's website, it says 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right now, which would make it 11 a.m. Central Time where you're at. I don't know. They need to fig- They need to tell us what's going on there because we don't yeah, know. Yeah, they do. And Daylight Savings is going to probably bite somebody somehow with getting to the start oh, yeah. line <laughs> yeah. on Sunday. So that'll be interesting. Is it time we just get rid of Daylight Savings? Yeah. I'm on that train. Yeah, me too. But it'll just be interesting to see if that bites anybody and then uh, how that how that plays out mm-hmm. well jack rich and i are going to do our fantasy draft I believe tomorrow so check out reinforced running podcast this week to see who we draft there's nothing more exciting in the world than a fantasy running draft 
that's for sure. It's entertaining to listen to, and you always dress like a clown for those things, so if there's video. <sighs> Kirk, I am offended. Oh, what was it? last? You had a cowboy hat on last time you recorded? That was Lisa's sun hat. Okay. How come you don't dress like that for me? <laughs> we record in the morning. I'm all cold. And... <laughs> oh, you did give me the uh, the therapist dress up. That was nice. Yeah. What was it? Last time we chatted with her, she had like an eye patch on and the time before. An eye patch? Don't you remember wearing an eye patch? Who did you have an eye patch on for? I wore an eye patch once, didn't I? Did someone have eye surgery or get an eye injury? I don't know, Bracken, but you wore an eye patch for the whole episode. There had to have been a reason. Beside the point, I feel like you always have something interesting going on when you record with Rich, so there's that. I'll let my hair down a little bit over there. Yeah. Plus, Jack is just like my punching bag. Mm-hmm. I've noticed. I really look forward to going to town on Jack. Yeah, it's, it's good listen. Those are those roundtables are a good listen. Okay, that's it. I think that's it. That's all we got. Oh, Elliot Kipchoge dominated the marathon in Tokyo. Yes, he did. In case you wanted an update, two o two forty. I think he ran. He and the winner from the female Bridget Koskai both ran the number three time in history. Yeah. 20 Japanese males broke 210. Insane. For a nation a fraction of the size of us, they had, I think, 16 more people break 10 in that race than we had all last year. Impressive. Maybe 18 more. As the distances get longer, the Japanese get better. They just do. It was awesome to watch. Yeah, and I think Elliot Kipchoge owns, what, the first, third, and fourth fastest all-time marathons, or first, third, and fifth? No, something like that. Yeah, impressive guy. He he sacked up and held on to him for a long time. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a gutsy run and didn't fade crazy bad until the last mile. But still, like what twenty seconds wasn't that much. Was more than that. I think he he still ran two o three. Yeah, high or two o four low. Two o four oh, I think he ran. Which is like fourteen forty five k pace or something for a marathon, oh, I believe, is disgusting. what that comes out to. Yeah, world record pace is fourteen twenty five per five k for twenty six point two miles. Yeah, makes me feel bad. Fourteen twenty five wins indoor D three nationals almost any year. <laughs> it's a weird comparison to make, but it just shows how otherworldly these gentlemen are on the world stage. Yes, it does. Thought we should update you guys because we talked about it at length uh, in the last episode. All right, till the next one, right, Bracken? On to the next one. Leon this week. Yep. Allegedly. Try number two. See you guys. (laughs) 